Okay, everybody, the cheesecake is finished, so we can start. Can get you one? <laughs> Good cheesecake. Oh my gosh. Now everybody's on cheesecake. Everybody's on That's right. So let's get started because it's 1231. We're already a minute behind. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. We're Leviticus chapter 26. The penultimate chapter. Penultimate means the one before the last. There's your fancy word for the day you can use. <laughs> Drop that into conversation around the water cooler. So, the end of Leviticus, we're closing in. Last week we talked about how we're at the end of a covenant document. And covenants were sealed with a ceremony where um, it'd be different ways, you know, but usually involved a shared meal, but there would be a, a a document created, a covenant document, like we have a contract. And there are different formats, whether it's the you know, second millennium BC, whether it's seven, eight hundreds BC, there were some different formats that different covenant treaties used. But one of the things they had in common was at the end, there were stipulations. Actually, usually towards the beginning, there'd be stipulations. So if you made a covenant, you had a part of the bargain to upkeep. You had to uphold your part of the bargain. You had to do certain things that were your end. And in return, the person who you made the covenant with, the more powerful party in the covenant, would promise blessings, would promise that they would do these things for you. So you keep your end, I'll keep my end of it, which would involve things like protection. Um, it would involve things like if there were supernatural, like the gods were making a covenant, it would be like, you know, we'll send you rain and we'll bless your crops and will increase your womb fertility and all this kind of stuff that were matters of life and death in the ancient Near East. Well, another aspect of these covenants was after the stipulations and the promises of blessing for keeping it, there was a section that was the covenant curses. And it was the section that was usually twice, sometimes three times as long as the blessings. And it was the converse of it. So, or the inverse, or whichever word it is. The opposite. So if the blessings were this for those who kept the covenant, then for those who broke the covenant, the curses would be exponentially worse. And they would hit those same areas that the blessings hit. So last week we looked at the blessings of the Levitical covenant that God's made with Israel at the base of Mount Sinai throughout the book that we've been studying since January. He, he made all these promises and he promised all the things that they wanted, all the things that the false gods would uh, claim to provide fertility, uh, rain in the seasonal uh, produce, um, the land producing its yield, you know, the big harvests, protection from wild animals, um, all of this, you know, fertility for them, you know, have many children, many offsprings, all of these things that the false gods promised that Israel's neighbors, the Canaanites, believed that their gods provided. God, Yahweh, the true God of Israel, was saying in a way that they would understand and in a way that all the nations watching and reading and hearing about this would understand. God is saying, I'm your covenant king. I will provide for you. And I'll provide beyond anything you can imagine. Now, right after that, just like you would expect in a covenant document of the ancient Near East, God then says, but if you don't keep my covenant, 
And just like the other ancient documents uh, from this time period, he lays out the curses, and they're the opposite. And they're actually they're not the opposite. They're the exponentially worse uh, than what they would be. It's not just a simple opposite. So it starts in verse 14, and it says, so it goes on to say, you know, in the previous section we looked at last week, the first uh, 13 verses, how he would bless them and what he had done for them and all this. And then he goes on to say, but... If you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and what are the commands? Everything in Leviticus, everything that we've read so far. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you. If you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. So it's not just if you accidentally slip up. God's not talking about, oh, you failed to keep the Sabbaths on the correct day. I am going to send curses on you. Oh, you accidentally took my name in vain when one of your cattle ran off. I'm going to send my curses on you. Right? Oh, you accidentally mixed some pork into your whatever. It's not like that. What God's saying is he's making it clear. If you reject my decrees, not you miss, you, you tried to do it and you failed. God's not talking about that. God's talking about you're saying, hey God, I see what you want and forget you. I'm rejecting that and going my way. That's what he's talking about. If you abhor my laws, not if you fail to keep them accidentally, not if you try and you don't succeed perfectly. If you abhor them, to abhor something is to utterly despise it, to, to want nothing to do with it. Okay, so I want you to hear this because these curses are going to sound really harsh. And our Protestant New Testament tendency is to go, oh, it's because they, were, they didn't keep the laws just right. Thank goodness we don't have that God that we serve anymore. We have loving Jesus who lets us break the law as we want and we're still forgiven and saved and blah, 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 blah. It's not like that. That's a caricature. That goes back to Martin Luther and before him St. Augustine and a long line of Christians unfamiliar with the Old Testament heart of God. God is talking about the equivalent of what the New Testament author of Hebrews talks about as rejecting God, as turning away from God completely, as, as apostatizing, so to speak. So he's not just talking about, you know, just, uh, I just, I tried, but I failed. God, please forgive me. And God's like, no, curse, no, pestilence, no, fire. It's not that. This is talking about full-on wanting, wanton uh, rejection. This is talking about treason. It's what would be called in any other covenant document. It would be called treason. So that's what God's referring to. Then I will do this to you. Verse 16. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and drain your life away. You'll plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I'll set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. And you will flee even when no one's pursuing you. So there's this immediate sense of God's, God saying, I will make it awful on you. And your enemies will overtake you. The previous promises, I'll, I'll, what did God say? One will put to flight ten or you know, five will put to flight a hundred or whatever the previous numbers he used. In other words, I'll, I'll make you so that you're undefeatable. This is the exact opposite now. God's saying, you'll be so scared that even if no one's pursuing you, you'll run away. Like, you will be terrified. I will inflict, I will bring upon you this entire, exact opposite of what he said in the blessings. Verse 18. 
If after this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. This is a long-term thing. This is not an immediate thing. You don't realize your seed doesn't uh, yield fruit until the season has run its course. So God's not doing these instantaneous justice. This is, this is a period of time in which God says, oh, make the sky like iron and the ground like bronze. What does that mean? Well, iron and bronze are waterproof. It's not going to rain. And bronze, you can't plow bronze. The, 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 the ground itself will become almost like a rock. Uh, and is, what, is he speaking literally? Not necessarily. This is metaphorical use. This actual curse is found in other ancient Near East treaty documents as curses. May the gods make the skies like iron. And, and so this is stock language using to describe utter and complete agricultural failure. And that's a terrifying thing for an agricultural society. Right? They, they don't have fast food backup. Right? They can't go get something at the store. If the, if the ground does not produce harvest, they die. And this is what God's saying. And it's a period of time. All throughout this, look what he said, if you will not listen to me. The whole point of these curses is, as they go, God is using these curses, like he did in Egypt, crying out to the people, hey, turn back to me, turn back to me, look around you. There's a reason all this stuff is happening to your land that's the opposite of what I promised I'd do if you kept my covenant. The reason is because you have turned away from me, so turn back to me. That's what he keeps saying throughout every prophet that writes in the Old Testament, with, with the exception of like one or two, um, is, is calling Israel to turn back to God because this stuff that we're reading right now was happening to them. And the prophets recognized it. So you read Ezekiel, especially Ezekiel, and he makes frequent use of the imagery in this. Why? Ezekiel was a priest. Ezekiel was a priest. He would have been well from He would have had this entire book memorized. He would have known for certain these Levitical curses had come upon his people who were now exiled along with him in Babylon. So you read Ezekiel and all this imagery is, is throughout the entire book, including the cuss word that we're about to see in a minute. Um, so then he goes on, verse 21. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, second time, third time in this section they refuse to listen. First time, verse 14, then verse 18, now verse 21. You refuse to listen to me. I will multiply your affliction seven times more as your sins deserve. I'll send wild animals against you. They will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. This imagery of the whole land suffering. And so that now the wild animals, even the wild animals, now their normal prey, their normal food chain is disrupted. And so they are coming into around people and actually taking and, and stealing the children of the people and attacking the people itself. And so all of these things are like snowballing together in terms of awfulness. And it's going to get worse. Verse 23, if in spite of these things you do not accept my correction but continue to be hostile toward me. Again, this is not about people just messing up. They're hostile toward God. And he's, he's using his... His, these curses that are coming upon the people, every single one of them is for the purpose of getting the people to turn. If the people would turn and listen at the first one, none of this would happen. They don't at the first one, he sends the second. None of it happens. has to happen. 
He sends the third. None of it has to happen. It's just like the plagues of Egypt. This is the inverse of the Exodus. Remember the Exodus. Every plague God was saying through the plagues to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, stop hardening your heart. Turn to me. And continue with Pharaoh refused. So Israel now is in the role of Pharaoh doing the very thing that Pharaoh was doing. Hardening their heart in part, not obeying and being hostile toward God. So this forms kind of a bookend with the Exodus. So he goes on to say, if you continue to be hostile towards me, verse 24, I myself will be hostile toward you and I will afflict you for your sins seven times over. And I will bring the sword upon you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdraw into your cities, I'll send a plague among you and you'll be given into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. Famine starts to set in now. And it's so severe that all of the bread that ten women have to prepare can't even fill up one oven. You get the image of women just like gathering scraps of whatever wheat that they can uh, process and making these little mini, almost like think communion wafers or something. like. That's what basically the people are left with because of the starvation brought about by this siege on their city. This is how siege warfare works in the ancient world. If there's a city on a hill, say Jerusalem, which is a city on a hill, you, you, you want to attack it, but it's got walls around it. You don't just run in and attack it. That's stupid. All you have to do is you just surround the city and you wait. And you wait and you wait and you wait. You starve them out. This is Siege Warfare 101. It's, you can read about it, I think, in the Odyssey or the Iliad. You can read about it in ancient Near East accounts. You read about it in the biblical accounts. This is exactly what Israel's enemies did. The Assyrians did this. Babylonians did this. It's exactly how you fight cities in the ancient world. You just wait. And eventually the people inside, they can't get out. And if they don't have their own water source inside, then they're really in trouble. Eventually they turn on each other. They start to get sick. They start to get uh, food runs out. They start... You know, you just, Josephus writes about these conditions that happened in Jerusalem when Rome sieged the city. So after Jesus, 70 years after Jesus, give or take, um, Rome did this, or 40 years, Rome did this, and, and the conditions that Josephus describes are horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Uh, and in fact, it'll tell you right here. <clears throat> Verse 27, if in spite of this you still do not listen to me but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger, I will be hostile toward you, and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. This is the last resort in siege warfare is cannibalism. And it's documented in almost every siege account. Uh, it happens, this happens in 2 Kings chapter 6. This actually happens when the, they are besieged. Uh, there's a very, very grisly, horrid account of cannibalism in 2 Kings 6 where two women are fighting over because they both agreed we'll, we'll, we'll cook and eat our son today and then we'll cook and eat your son tomorrow because they don't want their kid to grow up in this horrid condition and they're going to starve to death and their family will starve to death if they have nothing to eat. And all of the animals have already been eaten. Even the bits of leather, people would take their sandals or their, the leather, the, any leather they could find, which is organic material, and they would boil it to soften it and they would eat that. They would take barks from trees and put it in boiling water and make kind of this tea type thing. Today, in, uh, I think it's in Haiti after the earthquake, you can find people mixing a tiny, tiny bit of like some kind of spice or something with dirt and making these clay pies that they eat just to have something to fill their stomach. 
So this is the conditions that famine and starvation bring people to. And it happens in Scripture, 2 Kings 6. It happens in Josephus, the siege of Jerusalem. There's a whole story, again, about a soldier breaking into a house because a woman, uh, they, the, those, those bandits, and it, it, when Jerusalem fell, and this is what Jesus talked about when he said uh, it would be worse for nursing women and pregnant women in those days. He's talking about 70 AD and what would happen. And he says, you know, so woe to those who are nursing at that time. There's the account Josephus writes about that specific incident. And he says that uh, bandits would come in or, or, or brigands or those who were fighting against Rome. The reason that they were sieged was because of the revolutionaries and they were fighting against Rome and Rome cracked down on them. The, the, the brigands, the bandits, the revolutionaries would go from house to house taking any bit of food that they could get from the people to feed those who were fighting against Rome. And so there's a woman who has nothing and all her food's been taken away and she's a widow and her family's dead and everything. And she, all she has is her, her newborn. And so she basically says, I don't want my child to grow up like this, and I am sick of these soldiers, and I'm going to show them. And so she uh, kills her newborn, and she basically cooks it. And the soldiers come to the house because they smell food, cooked food, and she serves them the, the food, and they eat. And then she goes, now look what you've just eaten, and she shows them, and it's the the child and they're just abhorred and all of Israel hears about it, all of Jerusalem hears about it and Josephus writes that nothing like this has ever uh, been known in, in, up until now uh, in times before or the times up until now, like he uses that phrase worse than any other time in history to describe that because of the shame and the revulsion that that brought about and that was in Jerusalem in 70 AD well the same thing happened in 2 Kings Chapter 6. And it's all what God is saying right here. If you continue to obey if you, or disobey, if you continue to be hostile, if you, what God is saying in all of this is if you remove yourself from this covenant, then I'm removing the covenant blessings from you and I am letting everything that I'm holding away from you, everything that I'm fighting off from you, all the forces of darkness that I'm holding back because I'm your God. If you say, get out of here, God, I'll say, so be it. And then all those things will come rushing in. And that's exactly what happened when Assyria came in in the 10th century, 9th century uh, AD or BC. And then he goes on to say, verse 30, I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your carcasses on the carcass of your idols. Or NIV says, pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols. It's a wordplay. Saying, you know, you go after these dead things to worship, then I'll pile your deadness on top of those dead. God is talking about the, the turn to idolatry, the turn to Canaanite idolatry that Israel would be tempted to do, that they ultimately would do. But he's, he's warning them, he's crying out, don't turn to it, don't turn to these false gods, don't run after the Canaanite gods. We talked about this all year, the way the Canaanites would worship was through things like child sacrifice. And things like these orgiastic rituals that would be done where? On the high places. Why? Because they were seen as closer to Baal's domain, which was in the sky. He was the storm god. And so you would have sexual orgy behavior in the high places, in the sight of Baal, to get Baal fired up, to get Baal excited. So that then Baal would have sexual conquest with Asherah, who was the earth goddess, and send his seed, which was the rain, and it would penetrate the womb, which was the ground, and it would bring forth fertility which was the crops. 
That's how it all worked. And God's saying, you know, do not do this. Do not do this. And if things got really desperate, then the village or the town or the community would take their firstborn. They'd take a child, a baby. They would kill it on the altar. They would sacrifice it to Moloch, the god of the underworld, so that then the god of the underworld would lift whatever curses they were experiencing or would allow them to experience the blessings that they wanted. So it was this entire system that Israel would turn away from worship of Yahweh to and embrace the Canaanites did. So when we read this section and we're like, oh, this is so harsh, this is so severe, it's because of what the people have turned to. They have turned to an orgiastic human sacrifice form of worship. And so God's saying, stop, turn back, turn back. And for decades, decades, centuries, he would give them to turn back. And when they finally didn't, when they were, were, were committing high-handed sin, Sin done with uplifted hand, which meant sin done in the full presence of God. Like, God, not only am I not trying to hide this from you, I'm actually trying to get your attention. Hey, this is the sin I'm doing because I don't care about your law. That's the type of rebellion that this is warning against. So when we read this section in your daily devotional and you're just like, oh, that's horrible. Cannibalism and context. You have to put it in the whole context of the book. This is what God's saying. God's saying, I am not playing with you, Israel. You've seen twice in Leviticus, the only two narratives in Leviticus, when people presume upon God's presence, and both times they were struck down, those were warnings to the people that when it comes to God's name and His holiness and His dwelling, He doesn't play. Don't get complacent, is what He's telling these people. If you keep the covenant, if you follow Me, if you love Me, If you have a circumcised heart, is the phrase he used in the last chapter, then I will be for you in ways you can't even imagine. But if you decide to make me your enemy, get ready, because it'll be awful. And that's what this section is saying, because that's what every ancient Near East Covenant document would include, a section like this. Uh, He goes on to say that at the end of verse 30, uh, I'll pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, that word that's used for idols, there's a, ner- there's a term for idols, which is found throughout Old Testament. And uh, this is not that term. This is actually, it's the term, it's uh, Gilalim. And it's from, it's most likely, possibly, I'd say probably from the Hebrew term Gel, which is the word for human excrement. And it's always used in a profane way. Ezekiel uses it all the time. Um, and, and it's, it's a, like, it's... It's, it's a very, like Walt Kaiser, Old Testament professor, um, he, he was the president of Gordon-Conwell, very, very famous old OT professor. He says in his commentary on Leviticus, he's like, this is the most profane word in Hebrew. Like, there's no more, this would be bleeped out <laughs> if it were on TV, this word. So it's, it's the equivalent of the word that we know of for human excrement, that's profanity. And so that's what God's saying. These, these idols are basically stuff. <laughs> um, and again, Ezekiel will use this throughout his book to describe Ezekiel. Oh, that is a profane book in terms of imagery. God's intentionally shocking in Ezekiel. And he's intentionally shocking here. The language is shocking and vivid. It doesn't communicate in English. Then he goes on, verse 31, I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste to your sanctuaries. I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. This is what they, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they were saying, oh, we're still doing the sacrifices in the temple, so we're good. As long as we're doing the sacrifices in the temple, God's on our side. 
even after they had rebelled and, and apostatized and, and embraced other gods alongside of God. And, and he's warning right here. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah both and Jesus will both commit or, or go against this concept. The concept was, hey, as long as we're outwardly being religious, God has our blessing uh, as a nation. So as long as we're doing the sacrifices in the temple and Jesus comes along, what does he do? He overturns the table. He says, you've, you've made this place into a den of, of brigands, a den of, of revolutionaries. Um, you, you're profaning God's name. You're using the temple as a stronghold, but your lives are not dedicated to what the temple represents. And so God will take his name from this temple as quick as you can imagine. He did it in Ezekiel's day. There's a whole prophecy in Ezekiel about God literally leaving the temple and then the Babylonians coming in and leveling it. And Rome does the same thing. Josephus talked about before the uh, armies of Titus came and destroyed the temple, there was a vision of the people heard. Some people said they saw in the heavens uh, the, the, the forces of God leaving the temple. Uh, whether they did or not, we don't know. Josephus was prone to exaggeration sometimes. But the point was people realized God's not protecting us anymore no matter how many sacrifices we offer. And the temple became a stronghold, and that's why it was the last thing to be burned down by Rome. It was because the people had fled to the temple saying, surely God won't let the temple fall, not realizing that God's ultimate temple had already come and had been killed, crucified, one generation before. And so the temple itself was no longer anything but an empty shell of a building. And that's what God's saying here in Leviticus, is, is my presence, my tabernacle, all of this stuff, I'll, I'll level it. Once you stop worshiping me in heart, I don't care if you worship me in practice. You can print in God we trust on every coin in your empire. I won't care if you have not given me your heart. You can put the Ten Commandments in a courtroom. I won't care if the laws of those courtrooms don't reflect the heart of God and the way that those laws are carried out don't reflect the heart of God. God does not care about outward religiosity if inward, spiritual, genuine relationship with Him is not there. And so he's making that clear in this section. We'll finish it out real quick and then we'll call it a day. So he says, I will lay waste to the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. This is the whole book of Lamentations, by the way, is on this. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you're in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. God is saying, I will give the land its Sabbaths regardless of whether you're in it or not. I want you to be in it, but I don't care if you're not because the land will rest. So God's, uh, again, prophesying what would happen if Israel disobeys. As for those of you who are left, this will be the remnant, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies the sound of a windblown leaf will put them to flight. They'll run as though fleeing from a sword. They will fall even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword even though no one is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of your enemies because of their sins. Also because of their father's sins, they will waste away consequences of their sins 
they would experience, the consequences of their father's sins. Again, Ezekiel will have a whole chapter on this section where the people are saying, oh, so our, our fathers did, you know, our parents ate sour grapes, and so our teeth are set on edge, is the phrase that he uses. He's saying, oh, so we're being punished for the sins of our ancestors. And God's saying, no, you're experiencing the consequences of your ancestors' sin and for your continued hard-heartedness. So turn back to me. Every generation is only one repentance away from experiencing God's restoration and blessing. And so he's, he, he urges, again, read Ezekiel. It's like reading all of this in, in HD color. Uh, you will perish among the nations, and the nation of enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of the enemies because of their sins. Uh, verse 40, but, and here's, here's how it ends, and I'll end on this. We've got a minute and a half left. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am Yahweh. These are the decrees, the Torah, or laws, and the regulations that the Lord established on Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. So the command, this is fascinating because no other ancient Near East covenant does this. See, God will always take cultural norms and he'll infuse them with new meaning and oftentimes he'll take them in a whole new direction. So he did with circumcision. It's what he's done with the creation accounts, as we saw when we were studying Genesis. Uh, what God does here is he takes the ancient covenant treaty that's supposed to end with a word of dread. And the last word is a word of grace. Notice that nothing in here has anything to do with sacrifices. There's nothing in here about, okay, do the sacrifices and then things will get better. It's repentance. Excuse me. It's confession and repentance. Confession, repentance. Those are the things that can restore Israel back into covenant relationship with God. Confession and repentance. And it's all the prophets ever wanted the people to do. It's all they called them to. Repent, confess, turn back to God. They didn't. They were exiled in Babylon. After a generation, after the land had received its rest, they repented. Read about it in Daniel, his prayer of repentance. And then they were restored to the land. So there's the sense of that's what God requires. Repentance, confession, turn back to. Not do the sacrifices, not offer your best, not offer your firstborn child like Baal and Asherah and the other gods would want. Turn back to me with a circumcised heart. I'm using that imagery of a heart that's faithful to the covenant. Not an outward expression. Circumcision was an outward sign. And that's why he uses that phrase. The outward sign, he applies it to the heart. Be, be cut to the heart. And that phrase from the New Testament, from Acts, comes from that concept of the circumcised heart. That's what God requires. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, as Michael would put it. So the reason I'm emphasizing all this is because this is the background for every book of the prophets that you'll read in the Old Testament. 
you just jump right into the prophets. We're going to do a study of Jeremiah. And you're going to be like, what is going on here? Why is God so depressing and mean? This is the background. This is the background. So when you read the prophets, you're reading the centuries right up until this happened, when it's happening, and then right after it happens. That's what you're reading in the different prophets. And it all starts here with the covenant. We went two minutes over. Okay. Get out of here. You guys have a great week. Go back to work. See you next week.